Now, at least from the 9th century, Arab geographers illustrated treatises with maps. And over about a 600-year period, from, say, the 9th century to the middle of the 16th century, um, there were four basic approaches to making maps that you can detect in the Islamic world. Uh, Obviously, these reflect particular sources available to them and their attitudes towards map making. That would be obvious. But I'm going to start with a very brief comparison with what was going on in Europe at somewhat the same time. On the right-hand side, you'll see some European world maps that were made from, say, the 11th to the... Well, they're very typical of anything from the 11th through the 13th century. Uh, On the left-hand side are the Islamic maps, and immediately you can tell the difference. Just very quickly, at the top of the right-hand side is a typical, what we call a TO map, made in Europe. That is, it's called that because we have an inverted T inside an O, uh, thereby dividing the inhabited world into three basic continents, very large Asia, Africa, Europe. On a map like this, there will only be two cities ever named. They're Rome and Jerusalem. Um, All the other labels are regions, countries, continents. Um, The second one is a type of world map, again European, of course, where you get um, the inhabited world or or the land masses sort of at the top half, and the land masses at the bottom were considered land masses that could not be reached by human beings, so they were uninhabited, could never be inhabited toward the south somewhere. And then you have a map, I chose one of the famous one called Beatus Maps, made in in Spain, and there you get Adam and Eve. Uh, On the right-hand side, you have a paradise running uh, uh, vertically. Um, And again, only Jerusalem, in this case, would be named. All the labels are regions, tribes, peoples, continents. Very different uh, what is going on in the same time period in the Islamic However, I want you to notice that all the circular maps on both sides, they all have kind of rings around the outside. I'll give you another comparison. This is a very early Islamic world map, and I put in the TO. And what those rings on the outside represent are the surrounding sea. And it is, they are not the edge of a flat disk, which many people seem to think they are. Now, at the time, uh, not only scholars, but traders and travelers, farmers, many others, were well aware that the earth was spherical. Not flat, not disc-like. However, they felt that only one quarter of this sphere had inhabitable land on it. Everything else was water. And why bother to map a sphere of three-quarters water so you simply illustrate the water by the surrounding water around it. So how did they know that the Earth was spherical? Well, in both antiquity and the Middle Ages, you get routine statements. Very easy, they say. The sun does not set in all places, all localities at the same time. If it were flat, it would. It doesn't. And they, you can easily, if you travel at all, know that one part of, in one part of the world, uh, the length of the longest day of the year is noticeably longer or different than another part. And this can be detected by something as simple as a, a rather crude water clock. 
Even more, the standard explanation was if you're sailing, on the, and this is true of the Mediterranean, certainly large enough, if you're out on a ship and you approach um, a shore on which there's a mountain or a tall building, as you approach, you will see that mountain or tall building rise up. As Ptolemy, the second century AD astronomer, put it, it rises up as if it has been completely submerged by the water. And of course, this could only happen if the surface of the Earth were spherical. So if all these early peoples in antiquity in the Middle Ages knew that the Earth was spherical, why are we taught today in school that everyone before the time of Columbus thought the Earth was flat? Right, well, we are indebted to that bit of misinformation to an American novelist by the name of Washington Irving. And he, uh, primarily indebted, I should say, he wrote uh, a historical biography, semi-historical biography, I shall say, three volumes of Christopher Columbus. It was titled The History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus, published in 1828. It's enormously successful. And in it, he has this wonderful scene of Columbus arguing that um, he was going to defy the universally held view that the earth was flat. And this idea, this myth, this uh, literary conceit, if you will, was enormously attractive to 19th century European audiences. Uh, It appealed uh, to their sense of superiority, and it has been immensely popular since. It has influenced, unfortunately, education uh, as much as literature uh, for the subsequent 200 years. Now, not only did medieval scholars, farmers, sailors, so on, know that the earth was spherical, I've just dropped all my notes on the floor, so we shall have an interesting lecture, um, right? Not only did they know that it was spherical, But they set out to actually measure the size of the Earth. In early 9th century Baghdad, the Caliph Mahmoud ordered a geodetic survey to be undertaken to determine the length of a degree on the surface of the Earth along a north-south line, meridian, we would say, on the Earth's surface that would be equivalent to one degree of celestial uh, latitude. And of course, once you know that, you multiply by 316, you've got the circumference of the Earth. Uh, Ptolemy, uh, I'm sorry, the Caliph, Mahmoud, or his astronomers, had read that Ptolemy, or the astronomer from Alexandria, working in the second century AD, had written in his geography that one degree on the surface of the Earth was equivalent to 500 states. But no one at the court of Mahmoud knew what, how long a stain was. Nor, in fact, do we know that today ourselves. So, he orders his astronomers to set out to measure it. And what they did was to go to what is called the Plain of Sinjar in Iraq. And that's the area that I've marked with a rectangle, uh, south of Mosul. Mosul is on the Tigris. You see the Euphrates going a sort of uh, east to west in this. Now, our sources are very vague, muddled a bit about this. We don't have very many accounts of it. And some of the sources say 
that they didn't use the plain of Sinjar, but an area between Raqqa, which is on the Euphrates, and Palmyra, south of that. However, that area is very mountainous, actually. It doesn't show up on this Google map that I have uh, nicked for this. Um, and I think historians agree that it had to have been the plain of Sinjar. So what, what they did, the astronomers, a team of astronomers, were sent to this plain, and they divided into two groups. Half of them went north, due north, as much as they could tell, and the other half due south. And as they walked along, they measured their distances with cords and pegs, and they repeatedly measured the altitude of, well, according to some accounts, the pole star, Others say the sun. The sun's probably less likely, more than likely, the pole star. And then uh, uh, they continued to do that until they found that the altitude, say the pole star, had increased by one degree or decreased by one degree, once going south, uh, taking into account uh, the change in the declination that you would naturally occur as you are traveling. They did all that mathematically. Then they turned around and they walked back and repeated those distances, met up again, and then um, added up and, and calculated uh, the results. And this team found that a length of one degree on the surface of the Earth was equivalent to 56 and two-thirds Arab geodetic miles, which was equivalent to 111,747 meters. Now, the modern value for that at the latitude of Baghdad is 110,959 meters, an error of only 788 meters, or 0.7% error. This is a very good result. In fact, some historians have argued that it's really too good to be true. Um, and indeed, it is a real puzzle to historians today, just how they arrived at a figure using the methods that they claim. The details of the procedures are vague, and only one source, uh, Ibn Yunus, who died in 1009, uh, only one source gives any information whatsoever about what instruments they would have been using. And that one source doesn't tell you what the kind of instrument is at all. He simply says that each group used two precise instruments in which minutes were shown. That's all he says. Um, now, every, every, all the, everybody who writes about this presumes that's an astrolabe. The problem is, and here I show an astrolabe, you all, for you who will come to the second and third lecture, in the third one you'll hear a great deal more about astrolabe. But here is a very precise astrolabe, exceedingly precise astrolabe. And you will see where the, where the red arrow is. That points to a single degree graduation. The longer lines are every, represent every five degrees. So you have 360, say, around the rim of this very precise instrument. Now, if you have an instrument that's going to show minutes, it means that you're going to have to have 60 subdivisions at every, for every one of those single degrees on here. In other words, you'd have to have an instrument with 21,600 individual graduations around a rim. 
and that would require a very large instrument indeed. Unlikely that you're going to carry it up and down the plains of Sinjar, or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, so with a handheld instrument, it's very difficult to get the, natural, the necessary accuracy to get the result that they stated that they got. And with the every minute of error, uh, it would result in an, er in an error of approximately one mile. And this would accumulate as the measurements are made. So we're left with a bit of a mystery. But it is incontestable that they arrived at this result. And it is quite remarkable. I just put down there, in case you're interested, uh, what the circumference comes out to be. Now, 200 years later, this is 9th century Baghdad, basically, or Iraq. Uh, 200 years later, another method was proposed on how you're going to find out how large the Earth actually is. And it was proposed by al-Biruni, in his treatise on the determination of the coordinates and distances between cities. Uh, he worked in uh, what is now modern Afghanistan. And according to his method, he said that he knew of a method that would not require walking in deserts. By his method, you would determine the radius of the Earth based on the observation of the horizon from a mountain peak. That mountain peak has been identified by modern historians where that red dot is. Basically, it's a mountain peak in the Salt Range. This is in the Punjab, about 60 miles south of Islamabad. And Biruni, and it, it, the, there are south of that where that red dot is, those are very flat Punjabi plains. Now, Biruni says that you, what you need is a mountain peak facing toward a wide, flat plain whose flatness served as the smooth surface of the sea. Then he goes on to say, on its peak, I measured the horizon, that's the, and he calls it the intersection of the heaven and earth, and found it by an instrument, no other details, an instrument, to incline at 34 minutes from the east-west line, which is, he means by that, a true horizontal, which he determined as being right angles to a vertical, which he determined by a plumb line. Then he says he took the height of the mountain, found it to be 652 and 1 20th cubits. He uses a lot of trigonometry, and he calculates the radius of the Earth. There's a little sort of exaggerated diagram down here, sort of giving you an idea of what's going on. He finds the radius to be 12,803,337 and cubits. And then, of course, he then calculates the circumference, divides by 360, and lo and behold, he has virtually the same result that they got in uh, two centuries earlier in Iraq. And then he says, we might as well just go ahead and use the value that they found in Iraq, because it was... Uh, because, he says, they had more precise instruments than he had and took greater pains, he says. Now, you've already noticed, I'm sure, a problem with this account. Namely, what instrument could Biruni have carried up to the mountaintop that would have been precise enough to have given a reading of 34 minutes? So it's become a very famous instant, incidentally, that has been put into a lot of popular uh, science writing recently. However, uh, modern scholars who have attempted to replicate this, 
and they think they've identified, they assume they've got the correct peak. They found it extremely difficult to actually see the horizon, much less fix a line of sight that's tangential to the Earth's surface, which was what this would require. It was always obscured by dust and haze and things. Um, however, one day there was a heavy rainfall. They ran out and took some measurements. And when they put them all together, they, of course, came up with quite a different uh, result. Um, and they also argued that one of the primary problems is that Biruni did not take into account refraction. And if, but, of course, he wouldn't have because he didn't even know of the concept of refraction. So, put all that together, historians have concluded that Biruni worked backwards, to put it kindly. Um, it's not the only example, regrettably, in the history of science, uh, where you have adjusted data to get the results that you wished, and even presented fictitious observations in place of true observations. And I think that's what he's doing here. Or to put it in more sympathetic terms, he's arguing backwards from results he already knows in order to propose a new ingenious method that under ideal circumstances and better instrumentation would have produced the same results. And mathematically it would. It just physically doesn't, given at his time anyway. So, and getting to maps, bear with me, there is no doubt that he is extremely interested in coordinates. In fact, that's the topic of his entire book. And he was, the measurements of geographical latitude at this time was relatively straightforward. Uh, they could use uh, rings of fairly, uh, that were uh, calibrated uh, for sort of a direct measurement of the altitude using the, either the sun or the pole star. Could use an astrolabe too, not quite as well apparently. Longitude was a terrible problem. We all know that. And at the time that these writers are writing, most, well, virtually all longitudes were determined by the length of time a traveler took to get from one place to another. Um, then this time would be converted into miles using various conversion rates of you know, how many miles per hour or how many miles per day of sailing. And then that would be converted into angular distance using 56 and, and two-thirds miles per degree, which we know they found from the ninth century. Um, and I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I just, Barun, this is, again, has become rather well-known in the history of science. In this same treatise, Baruni gives a very detailed discussion of how you compute the difference in longitude between Grozna that's modern Grozny near Kabul, and Baghdad. Now, what he did was he, he has five cities, and he has the pretty good latitude measurements for all five of those places. And he then takes the distance, based on traveler's reports, from Baghdad through Shiraz, which is in Iran, up to Razna. That's one set of figures. And then he takes... The, uh, again, using travelers' accounts, the time distance from Baghdad to Rai, which is now almost a suburb of Tehran, up to Gurganj, which is near the Aral Sea, and back down to Grasa. And uh, after doing the necessary conversions, using uh, quite a bit of trigonometry to work out the distances, 
I just put this in. This is, these are results that uh, the historian um, Raymond Mercier has worked out. On the left, you'll simply see that the values for latitudes are really quite good. Rooney, for example, for Baghdad says the latitude is 33 degrees, 25 minutes, and the modern valuation is 33 degrees, 20 minutes. So, uh, um, the, the longitude difference between Baghdad and Khorasan we know today, at least to, for, to be 24 degrees and two minutes. Bruni uh, got two values, one using one set of data, one course through Shiraz, got 24 minutes, 50, 24 degrees, 54 minutes, 26 seconds, and the other set gave him 23 degrees, 44 So the point is, it's really, you know, he, he's within a, a, a degree, and that is actually uh, quite a remarkable way of um, approaching longitude, and, and you don't get better um, really substantial increases in the value of, of the longitudes until the 17th century. So it's, it's quite good. But the, you know, that's only the case for a few places where they have enough data to do that. Um, nonetheless, he goes on, he gives the latitudes and longitudes of several hundred cities. People from the 9th century on um, gave compiled lists of latitudes and longitudes, 800, 900 of them. Uh, right. So how much use did they make of them in maps? In a word, uh, in a short word, not a lot, actually. Uh, but we can see traces, but only a little bit in what we have preserved today. Now, the first group that we do have preserved today comes, again, from Baghdad, from the 10th century. We call it the Balkhi School, named after the first sort of member of the school, so to speak, al-Balkhi. Um, who died in 934, his treatise had one world map and 21 regional maps. None of, no, none of them are preserved today. But he had three followers, you might say, who continued to, and added in new material. And they also, these three, Istakhri, Hacho, and Bukhadasi, um, also in their treatises would have one world map and 21 regional maps. And all of them were interested uh, primarily in land routes, not sea routes. And they were interested in land routes that would be useful for trade, uh, for pilgrimage, and for the postal system. They had, there was a very uh, well-established postal system that relied on relays between um, post localities on specified routes. So let's look at the first of the world maps. Just two examples here. Uh, one on the right, uh, one on your left, is um, one of the earliest maps we have uh, from the Islamic world, but you can see they're similar. And if we look at one in a little more detail, uh, first note, there are no cities named at all on a map like this, only regions, countries. South is at the top, it's circular, we have the water around the outside, Indian Ocean comes in, on the left, the east, the Mediterranean from the right, only three islands in the Mediterranean. The Nile is a straight line. Africa is huge and extends right over the top of the map, which is, of course, south. Uh, stylized line work, extreme abstraction of geographic forms, as one person has put it. Um, others have called it crude and uh, primitive, but anyway, there we are. 
very typical of Archisville. But they also had the regional maps. The regional maps are really very interesting. This is a quite typical example. This is Syria. South is at the top again. Uh, you can see from the labels the Mediterranean. All geographical features have been removed except uh, the serrated edge of a mountain range that represents a mountain range. Otherwise, there are no surface features shown. Um, what I want you to especially notice is that all of those little geometric forms, those little circles and polygonal shapes, those are stops along itineraries. And each stop along an itinerary, well, all of the stops along an itinerary will be indicated with a symbol that is of the same size. Even more important, the distances between all the stops have been equalized. They're all the same. In addition, you will only see vertical lines, horizontal lines, and lines at 45 degree angles. Now, you will all recognize this principle, which was stated principle of Harry Beck. This is his first sketch in 1931. And in fact, he said he was going to have all the stops should always be indicated by the same symbol of the same size. All distances should be equalized. And again, he only used verticals, horizontals, and 45 degree angles. Now, he did this at a time he was sort of commissioned to uh, produce a map that would increase the ridership in the underground. And he argued that if you didn't know <laughs> that the time between one stop was going to be hugely long and another Sure, you will, you will get on, it will all make everything look easier. And it worked, of course. It's been immensely successful. Unfortunately, we don't know the rationale behind the designer of the bulky regional maps. We don't know why they were doing this, but they, were, they did it for whatever, whatever reason. Um, so both of these, the bulky school from the 10th century, and the underground maps from the early 20th century are really sophisticated maps in their way. Uh, neither type of map are um, mathematically generated, uh, nor are they plotted. But both can be counted, I think, amongst the best maps in a concept conceptually speaking uh, that were, have been ever uh, produced. Regrettably, I can't find any evidence that Harry Beck ever saw one of these Arabic maps. It's not, it's not impossible because there are two copies in the British Library. Presumably he could have gone there to see one, but uh, I don't know that. It's, uh, at the moment, it appears simply to be two completely independent inventions a thousand years apart. Now, now we go to the second very different approach to making maps. We move from Baghdad in the 10th century to Egypt in the 11th century. And these are maps that are found in a treatise that was acquired by the Bodleian Library about 10 years ago by now. Um, it is not an atlas, as, this, as, as you may think from the way I've arranged these images. It's in fact a treatise. It's a treatise on the heavens and on the earth. So there's a lot of text, and these maps are embedded in a treatise as illustrating various topics within, within the treatise. And the text informs us very clearly that the author is writing between 1020 and 1050 AD in Egypt. 
but we don't have his name, so it remains anonymous. These maps are, well, all but two are completely unique to this manuscript, and it has, supplied, it has really supplied us with some really new and important uh, material in viewing medieval mapping. Obviously, I'm not going to, there's too much here to spend a great deal of time on, but I'll point out three basic things. This map, which is a world map, a rectangular-shaped world map, attracted immediate attention. Let me explain a little more here. We have south at the top again, a rather huge Europe that is a bit of an island on the lower right, Africa at the top. The source of the Nile, called the Mountains of the Moon, is represented by kind of a parachute-like device that comes down. And um, anyway, you can see Arabia. Over on the far left is the Island of the Jewel, and that represented the easternmost inhabited land in the inhabited world. Um, now, what's, I should also stress that this map has 582 city names on it. Now, this is in vast contrast to any earlier map all world maps prior to that, other than naming Rome or Jerusalem on a, on a European map, would only have countries or regions or peoples, but not cities. 582 cities on this. And it has this scale, or graticule to be precise, at the top. And this, of course, immediately made, we think, was this map based on one that had been plotted using these um, coordinates of latitude and longitude. We know that maps made, plotted like that, did circulate in the 10th century, um, but none are preserved. We actually have this treatise, was written right at the end of the 10th century, beginning of the 10th century, um, by an astronomer working in Baghdad, Sohab. He in this book, yes, again, lots of latitudes and longitudes, but he gives directions on how to make a map. And he says that you've got a very large piece of paper, it's to be uh, rectangular. He, this is his diagram on how to make a map. He puts south at the top, uh, you have your equator going across, and you basically divide, you, you, you put 30 degrees south, which is above, in this case, the equator, and 90 degrees below, which would be north, and then 180 degrees this way. And he says, you to actually, you then take the latitudes and longitudes and you plot them using a string, two strings actually, one for the north-south and one for the east-west, and you run it down as need be before you put in your mark for a particular place. Regrettably, we don't have any of these maps, but the, um, well, just a very quick aside here. Our friend Baruni uh, <coughs> is full of ideas um, in the 11th century, again, working in Grozna, uh, has also some ideas about how you can project maps of the world. He actually gives these in a treatise on, how, on uh, celestial mapping, but then he says these two would be very good for doing world maps. Um, the terms, the ortho orthographic, of course, are ours, but basically that's what he's doing. Uh, the right-hand one is more of a grid than a projection. Anyway, again, with Biruni, these are brilliant ideas. He never, there's no evidence he ever tried to make a map like this. There's no evidence anyone ever tried to do it. Um, and they were of no historical significance. 
but they are examples of an extremely creative, inventive mind. And uh, people sometimes like to uh, draw that out as examples of what was done at this time. But it's not an example, so far as we know, of what was actually done. It was what was conceived of being able to be done by a very brilliant man who would have made a great theoretical physicist were he alive today. Um, But he had no practical skills, actually, at all. But back to our plotted maps. We do know that there were these basic rectangular plotted maps, and we know from uh, that did circulate from a number of sources, and one of them is the scale at the top of this. Um, Also, uh, unfortunately, what we have, though, is a copy of a very... It's been many times removed from what would have been an accurate plotted map, in addition to which it's been overlaid with itineraries and river systems from the Balkis school, and also some elements, such as that parachute representing the source of the Nile, comes from another astronomer and uh, mathematician, Khwarazmi, ninth uh, century again, um, known primarily for us today as having really established the whole field of algebra. But he also did a treatise on geographical coordinates with illustrations, four of which exist, and he has this parachute notion of the origin of the Nile, not known before his day, and it gets incorporated by our man in the 11th century, put onto that map. Uh, in addition to which, our man in Egypt in the 11th century has a separate map of the Nile that is virtually identical to Khorazmi. So he's clearly lifting this from material two centuries earlier. Again, now the Bodleian map, Egypt, 11th century, adds in four additional river maps. They're unique to this manuscript, probably originally Khorazmi, we don't know, but very uh, all rivers fit the side of the size of an available piece of paper, which is very convenient. Um, even more interesting is that he gives us three oceans or seas: the Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Caspian Sea, and four islands or island cities. Now, these are full of historically important material, as you can imagine, because that map of Sicily was made, it's the earliest map we have of Sicily, Sicily, and it was made before the Norman invasion, and it's covered with information. Uh, The map of Tunis, which is a little city in the Nile Delta, our only map, the city was completely annihilated in the early Crusades. Uh, Cyprus is a square, uh, but enormous amount of information on the ports uh, that were in use in the 11th century in Greek uh, Byzantine area of Cyprus. All these other areas are um, uh, Islamic. But what's particularly interesting from the standpoint of map making is the way he has delineated the shorelines. Because as you can, as you can see, um, They're all ovals, circles, squares. Uh, This is quite uh, unique in the the history of uh, map making. And he provides us an entire chapter on his philosophy of map making in uh, in the second book. 
And he begins by saying, look, all shorelines change. And within his own lifetime, he says, there have been areas that were inundated, but now they have become dry and we can live on them. And other areas were inhabited but are now flooded and all the people have had to leave. The river courses change. This is highly annoying to someone making a map. Moreover, and this is a direct translation, if the shape of the sea is reproduced accurately on the basis of latitude and longitude coordinates, the contour of the sea would form sharp and obtuse angles, square and rounded lines. This shape of the coast exists in reality, but even if drawn by the most sensitive instrument, the cartographer, behind us in Arabic, would not be able to position the name of a city properly amongst all these sharp angles and curves. So in other words, he's, he feels that getting the names of your ports, that's what you're wanting most from the map. So in, in one um, argument, uh, he addresses really the, the quandary that cartographers have faced of constantly changing of shorelines and river courses and so on, and the limitations of physical space and getting detail. And then he's also provided an argument for being just a little bit lazy and uh, relaxed in his approach to map. But it's, it, it's very distinctive of this particular map. And he provides us with one other map, which is another world map, a circular world map. And no cities on this at all. Again, basically similar to a bulky world map, a little more detail. We have our parachute for the source of the Nile again. And incidentally, for what it's worth, which probably is not very much historically, this is the earliest mention of Inglaterra on a map. And we've, we've put this out to all kinds of historians of cartographers and as sort of a game everybody searched for it, and this seems to be it. Uh, right, now this actually is a sort of a bridge to the next group, and you'll, you'll see why. Because we move a century forward to the 12th century, to Sicily, 1154, and probably the most famous of Arab uh, geographers, to Europeans anyway, is al who worked for Roger II, the Norman king of Sicily. Uh, he was uh, originally uh, from... Morocco, but he was educated in Spain. He came from a family, a very important family in, uh, in North Africa with a lot of um, uh, connections. And it's often felt that one reason why uh, uh, he was asked to take this on by Roger II was uh, because of his knowledge of the political scene in North Africa as much as probably more than his knowledge of um, cartography, but for whatever, he is known for his treatise on geography, this illustrated treatise. Now, six copies have a world map, and this world map is virtually identical to the one you just saw in the earlier treatise a century earlier. So Idrisi actually never mentions this world map, ever, in his treatise. So it, therefore, we assume that actually it was circulating before his day, and either he slipped it in at the front of the treatise or copyists slipped it in. But it makes a very good framework for telling you what Idrisi's approach was, which was, again, very different to mapping the world. 
And what you do, you have to notice these seven arcs. They're very, a little hard to see, so, but there are seven. And those delineate the seven classical climes. These are areas uh, beginning with the equator, so south is at the top, so the largest one is the equator. Um, and each climb, at each climb, in the midpoint, the length of the longest day increases by one half hour. That defines your climbs. They should not be the same with, Adrisi didn't quite understand that. He, he missed, actually, the basic fundamental definition of a climb, and he makes them seven equal bands, beginning with the equator. And then he comes up with a clever idea of dividing each one of those into ten. And then he decides he's going to make a map of each of those segments. So that's 70, seven zero individual maps that he's going to make. And I'll show you two examples I've put in, uh, circled in, in red, the two quick examples I'll give you. Here we have the northwest coast of Africa, corner of Africa. Um, they're beautiful maps. They are an absolute uh, feast for the eye. This is Sicily, by the way, uh, and another one. It's an ingenious system. Here we are. But there is a basic flaw. Each one of these individual 7D maps is quite as large. It's a double opening, manuscript about that big, um, one and a half to two feet wide. And there is text, a lot of text, between each map because he's supplying you information on uh, what's traded there, uh, what goes on in each one of the cities, the distances between them. So again, there are maps illustrating text. They're in book codex form. So there's no way that the reader can line up one map with the next. But of course, using modern technology, that's exactly what we can do, using a manuscript in Oxford and one in Paris. So this is 70 maps put together. South is at the top, as he would have seen it. And you flip it over, and everything begins to look amazingly good, actually. Um, particularly given that this is non-mathematical cartography. Nothing has been plotted on this at all. Um, and it's really quite, quite brilliant. It's, a, it's probably the masterpiece of non-mathematical cartography. Regrettably, no one at the time would ever have seen this. Um, now, final one. Fourth, very different approach. Takes us into the late medieval, early modern period when the recent Euro uh, developments in European cartography are really dominating what is going on in the Islamic world. And these are the maritime charts. Now, what I've put in here this is a, um, a slide of the earliest, what some people call Portland maps. That's sort of incorrect. We should call them maritime charts or Portland charts. This is the earliest one known to exist. Um, and it's been dated between 1250 and 1291. It's in pretty terrible condition. But if you look closely, you can make out, uh, I've labeled Sicily, so you can see Italy coming uh, down the foot above it. Um, this is the earliest European one. Now, uh, there's a lot of debate as to when these types of charts first arose, certainly after the compass came to be used. 
um, because it's felt that most of the data, well, it is dependent upon a compass, um, but they're not plotted, and they're, there's, again, there's not a mathematical projection at all. Um, the, basically, they're made in two areas, in Italy and in Catalan. And the ones made in Catalan, I'll show you an example, they influenced the, Afri the North African chart makers. Um, and all the uh, Catalan uh, maritime charts have this vivid red-brown uh, pigment that they would use. And uh, they feature pictures of kings and, as you can see, animals and all sorts of things. Um, now, on, as part of the exhibition, you, uh, there is, uh, there are, I believe only one possible uh, map from a, an eight-generation uh, family of map makers that worked in, uh, in Sfax in, in Tunisia, in the, mostly in the 16th century. And again, you can see similarities in the use of the, this red again, for one thing. Um, and in this particular case, the one on the right shows Sicily, outlined in green, picked out in green. And on the left, if you use your imagination, you can see Italy to the left. And what looks like a sort of blue line running up, that's supposed to be the Gulf of Venice. There's some idea. They produced, uh, in this particular manuscript, which is now in the Bodleian, uh, this member of the family has eight of these kinds of charts. Um, and also, on the left is a compass, uh, a wind, windrose compass, if you will. It's aligning the different winds with 32 points in the compass, which you needed to know in order to make use of the maritime charts. And on the right is a map to um, indicate the direction that you need to face, using a compass again, uh, to face Mecca. And around the rim are 60, uh, the names of 60 localities, so you can look up locality and get in, in very gross terms what direction you need, need to face. This is not really, uh, well, it, it, this is a representative of another type of mapping that I'm not getting into at all, which is mapping of what's called the Qibla, the direction toward Mecca, a very important part of the um, Islamic tradition of map making and probably one of the motivations actually, for particularly for the interest in refining knowledge of latitude and longitude. And showing this reminds me of you have here in the museum, I don't know how much of this is on, ex on exhibition, but a, a quite a fabulous collection of Qibla indicators. These uh, often have little maps on them, but they will incorporate an actual magnetic compass. And they go back the um, 15th century, 14th century, maybe the earliest. And then I couldn't resist. Uh, you also have an collection. This uh, electric one that was made in uh, electronic one made in uh, um, Atlanta, Georgia, actually. I think about 1985. Now back to our North African chart makers. Uh, they tend to be um, sort of almost like cottage industry. They're not very spiffy. Uh, but they are distinctive and presumably functional of some sort. Now, the other great group, really, at the same time, you had operating Ottoman chart makers. And they were influenced by the Italian school of 
portolan charts. Uh, so we have an example of a portolan uh, Italian map. Now of the Ottoman, Turkish, uh, maps made about the same period, uh, the most famous person, producer of these, is Piri Reis. Uh, now he came from a family of naval commanders, Ottoman naval commanders. He was possibly born in Gallipoli. Uh, and he composed a treatise on maritime matters that illustrated uh, individual sections of coastline, either on the mainland or on islands. And then with text, again, uh, telling you mostly those are sailing directions, how, how to enter the ports, uh, and so on. He did two versions. This is the first version. Um, then he wanted to get the support of Suleiman the Magnificent, and it was suggested to him that in order to do this, he needed to get a version of this that looked a lot nicer. So he hired um, professional miniaturists to produce a really deluxe version of this. And uh, several copies actually exist of this. Now, I only have a couple of slides. This is version number two. And you see he's really, uh, it's gone up a notch in terms of uh, attractiveness, perhaps not functionality, mind you. Um, this is Istanbul, according to, uh, and here we have Venice. So, uh, quite nice. Regrettably, he did not get the patronage of Suleiman the Magnificent. In fact, Kiri Reis was executed in Cairo in 1554 um, because uh, he was a naval commander and he had made an unfortunate decision, apparently, to purposely avoid a direct encounter with the Portuguese fleet. And this was considered sufficiently uh, <clears throat> inappropriate that they executed him. So he did never get his, pa his patronage. However, long before he died, actually, 1513, he made a world map of which, only, and this is, of which only this one fragment is preserved today. He made it in 1513. In 1517, he gave it to the then Ottoman ruler who had just finished conquering Egypt. And he, and he Piri Reis, was in Cairo, gave it to that ruler, obviously hoping for patronage also, and the ruler put it in his royal library, and it was never seen again until 1929, when it was discovered by a German Orientalist. Um, it has since then uh, made uh, period race rather well known. Um, you can see, I think, that on the right, you have you can see make out Spain and a bit of the African coast. We have the Atlantic Ocean, and on the left-hand side, a bit of well, Brazil and some of the islands, and I'll show turn it a little bit. Um, there's a lot of Turkish annotation to this. Uh, you even get little uh, drawings of the St. Brendan, uh, who is uh, shown with a crew building a fire on the back of a whale, uh, because uh, apparently the crew mistook a whale uh, for an island. So the story, he get, that's all in the legend there in Turkish. And he says that, that he's taken that from a, an ancient, an old Mapamundi. 
And obviously, you can see many European influences in all of this. Um, Cuba is drawn as a uh, peninsula, just as, as Columbus had actually uh, described it. Uh, now, as I say, there's quite a bit of commentary here. The longest inscription, just on the bottom there, um, describes very, the explorations of what we would call the New World, focusing on Columbus. Uh, and in it, Piri Reis says that he had, an un- he had an uncle named Kamal Reis who had a Spanish slave who accompanied Columbus on a voyage. And, uh, and then he says, the coasts and islands, this is of the New World, on this map are taken from Colombo's map, he says. And then just below that, next passage, uh, trans- uh, it, it reads in English, obviously, this section explains how the present map was composed. No one has ever possessed such a map. This poor man, that's himself, Piri Reis, has constructed it with his own hands. Specifically, he used 20 maps and world maps, the latter of the world maps, being maps made at the time of Alexander the Great. They show the inhabited part of the world, and the Arabs call them, and there's a garbled word for geography here, eight such geographical maps, one Arab map of India, four maps recently made by the Portuguese that show Pakistan, India, and China, drawn by means of mathematical projection. He could simply mean rum lines there, it's hard to tell. As well as a map of the western parts drawn by Columbus. All these sources have been brought to one scale, and the result is this map. Now, as I say, this went complete, this map was, after it was given to the Ottoman ruler in uh, 1517, remained completely unknown until 1929 when it was discovered, rediscovered, and it's attracted a lot of attention since then. And it became, obviously, because of the connection with a, a map that Columbus was known to have made in the voyage of 1498, but which is now lost. Um, and as you can imagine, it became a matter of great pride uh, to Turks that information about this lost map of Columbus would appear on a Turkish map. Uh, but it's still an unsettled question as to what direct access Puri race had to a map of Columbus. Um, certainly Turkish ships were capturing European ones at this time and, would, and could easily have confiscated a map. So it's not uh, by any means outside the realm of possibility uh, that this did happen, but it remains open. Now, in closing, medieval Islamic maps were really directed to quite mundane purposes, that of trade and empire, and as guides to armchair travelers, like Roger II for that one, they are completely devoid of theological content. And this, of course, contrasts greatly with the Mapamundi of Europe. And with the exception of the later maritime charts, uh, which, of course, are based on European models, Islamic maps are never ornament or ornamented with pictures of strange creatures or marvelous beasts or ships or castles, all, all of which routinely adorn European maps. 
nor do they represent events in history. They seem to have been designed strictly for utilitarian, you might say, rather than philosophical purposes, or for just simply the pleasure of a potential patron who dreamed of traveling to far-off lands. But I'd like to think that all of the maps that I've shown today will elicit the admiration of everyone who sees them. Certainly, I feel their testimonies to a very proud heritage of Islamic learning and craftsmanship and ingenuity. Thank you.